Well, good evening. Oh, good evening. <laughs> Call and response tonight. Uh, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be with you guys this evening. I have been praying for this for a while now, and I've been praying for each of you, mostly just that, um, that God's word would not return void, which it never does. So this weekend, we will be talking about trials. We will be talking specifically about endurance through trials. In the book of Hebrews, the author talks about endurance through trials. The people that he was writing to were a group of Jews who had believed in Christ and even suffered some persecution because of it. But their trials weren't going away. They weren't getting any better. They were actually getting harder. And these people, the Hebrews, they were growing weary. And they were tempted to look back and to let go of their hope in Christ. And in chapter 10, the author pleads with them, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. As Christians in this culture, the temptation for us is the same. As cultural pressures increase, as government protections decrease, as persecution becomes more of a reality, and as just the trials and tragedies of everyday life, they, they grow heavy, there's a temptation for us to grow weary, to look back, to let go, not hold on so fast to our hope in Christ. We have need of endurance. And the question is, how do we do this? How do we continue to withstand the trials of this life? How do we endure? That's the question we'll be answering this weekend. The material for these messages actually came out of a pretty significant trial that I went through a few years ago, which I'll talk about later. And it's relevant to me now, this year, in a, in a different way than it was back then. Back then, this material was relevant because I was right in the midst of it and I wanted to endure well and I wanted to, to um, just look to God's word to tell me how to do that immediately. But now that I'm a few years out, um, there's a weariness there that wasn't there a few years ago. And so I need to hear this all over again. How do we endure? How do I endure well? I have need of endurance. I don't know the trials that are in this room. The Lord does. Maybe you're weary from an ongoing health issue or a financial hardship. Maybe you're weary from battling the same sin over and over and over again. Maybe you're in a season with smaller trials, a dirty house, just like what I live in all the time with my four kids sometimes, it seems, and my dog. Um, or children who don't do everything you say the first time you say it, which is also me. Uh, perhaps you're struggling in your marriage um, or with a child who's walked away from the Lord. Maybe there's anxiety or fear about what might come in the future. Or maybe you're here and you're not in a trial at all, and you're wondering exactly how relevant this is to you right now about enduring trials. Can I just encourage everyone in this room to listen? Because there is something for you here. God's word, it is inspired. All of scripture uh, is profitable for us. Regardless of what season of life you're in, you need to know what God's word says about enduring trials. Because it's not just about enduring trials, it's about being prepared for trials before they come in order to do them well. For each of our three sessions, we will be asking a question. And our question for tonight is, when God brings difficult circumstances into our lives, when he brings trials, are we called to look for escape from them first and most? When God brings difficult circumstances into our lives, are we called to look for, for escape from them first and most? We have to start here 
Because as believers, if, if we're not called to escape trials, if we, are we called to endure them? If we're called to endure them, then why? What would the world say to that question? Isn't escape the first thing the world looks for when trials come? A way to get out of it, a way to avoid it, to distract themselves from it, medicate themselves to numb it a little bit? Does the world ever view trials as a good thing? Do they view them with any amount of joy when they come? Isn't the world's response to lament, to bemoan, to wail, to curse, to complain, I don't deserve this, this isn't fair, that person was too young, this happened too soon, etc. There's self-pity, there's despair, there's anger, bitterness, there's anxiety, there's fear. Is that how we should think when trials come? As believers, it is critical that we have a right perspective on trials. We need to stop thinking of trials through the lens of our own sinful hearts and the lost world around us and start seeing trials the way that God sees trials. So how does God see trials? And for that, we look to this book. This is the clearest revelation of God in the Bible. And so we go to his word for the answer to that. Turn with me to James 1, if you have your Bible. We're going to be in a few places in Scripture tonight, but this is going to be our main text. We'll keep coming back to it if you want to bookmark it. Our passage tonight is just one verse, and it might be a familiar verse to some of you, but this is a critical verse, and this is a verse that you can never grow weary of hearing. It's never going to stop being relevant to you while you live in a broken world. The author of the book of James is uh, most likely James, the half-brother of Jesus while he was on this earth, and the audience to whom James is writing are Jewish Christians who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution. We know this from the very first verse in the book, his greeting. It says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. They've been dispersed abroad in another translation. So they're, they've been scattered because of persecution. They're likely going to face more. That's the backdrop that James is writing. But I want you to see the very first thing he says to them after the greeting, knowing that they have been facing trials and that they will be facing more trials. He says this in James 1, 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or in the NASB, it says endurance, to consider it all joy. Our question is, when God brings difficult circumstances into our lives, when he brings trials, are we called to look for escape from them first and most? We're going to look at four truths from this verse that are, that's going to help us answer that question and to help us start seeing trials the way that God sees trials. So the first truth that we see from this verse is truth number one, that trials will come. And we see this in the context. He says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's not an if, that is a when. God has been so kind as to set our expectations for the Christian life exactly where they should be. Because the Christian life is never portrayed in scripture as a walk in the park. It's never portrayed in scripture as a stroll. It's never described as our best life now. It is described as a fight to the death. It is described as a grueling, exhausting race. It is a fierce battle. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, tribulation. In 1 Peter 4, 12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I don't know about you, but I'm always surprised when the fiery trial comes upon me. We're always surprised by them, but we shouldn't be, because God tells us clearly in Scripture that trials will come. I mentioned, um, or rather Carla mentioned, that I used to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea, 
which is an island just north of Australia. And we lived in a, in a helicopter access only village for a while. And life in our village was hard work. It was hard work for everybody. Chopping firewood every day, boiling water, planting and harvesting in a garden every day, sometimes a mile or two away through extremely rugged terrain. We had to constantly measure our water levels. We had to constantly measure our solar electricity levels. We had to make all of our food from scratch. And I remember how jarring it was the first time we took a break out of Papua New Guinea after being there for about a year and a half. We went to Australia for about a week. And, and we were driving, and I saw someone paddleboarding on the ocean. They were just, just paddleboarding. They weren't like having to do strenuous work just to survive that day. They were just having some recreation, and they were paddleboarding. And I was just jarred by that, coming out of such a difficult life environment. The Bible does not describe the Christian life as paddleboarding. It is hard work. The first thing for us to know about trials from the Bible is that they will come. And for the Christian, as we'll see, this is actually a good thing because God has a purpose for those trials. They are not meaningless. They do something. They are productive. When God brings difficult circumstances into our lives, are we called to look for escape from them first and most? And by way of answering that question, I want us to look at a couple of examples from Scripture. You're going to see that this weekend. I like looking at examples in Scripture because they're instructive. Whether that person is succeeding in their faith or failing in their faith, they're instructive for us to learn from them. So we're going to do that a couple of times. And so right now we're going to turn to Genesis 39. We're going to look at a couple of saints in Scripture and we're going to, who went through trials, and we're going to ask, did God give them escape? from their trials, and if not, why? Because God does not bring trials for no reason. In Genesis 39, this is where we're seeing Joseph. Joseph was the undisputed favorite of Jacob's 12 sons. He would later, um, those 12 sons would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. And that favoritism between um, Joseph and his brothers caused bitter jealousy between Joseph and his brothers, which eventually reached this boiling point where they wanted to kill him but decided to sell him into slavery instead. So Joseph is taken to Egypt, where he becomes a slave of, of an officer, a pharaoh named Potiphar. Joseph was in a trial. He's been removed from his home, his language, his culture, everything. Could God have granted Joseph escape? This is the question that we're asking here. And the answer is yes, but I, I want you to look what God gives Joseph instead. If you read with me in Genesis 39, verse 2. As he is in this house of Potiphar, as a slave, it says this, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. See, rather than escape from his trial, God provided something far more precious for Joseph. He provided the strength to endure with his presence. He didn't leave Joseph. He gave him strength to endure. Why? Why did he leave Joseph in that trial? Because... Rather than thwarting God's purposes, Joseph's suffering and his affliction, his trials were actually the means by which God was accomplishing his purposes. Joseph's suffering were the means that God was using to accomplish his purposes. The Lord was with Joseph. He gave him strength to endure, and his circumstances actually got worse. After he rejects the advances of Potiphar's wife, if you know the story, this is familiar, she falsely accuses him of assault. He's thrown in prison. So now, what's lower than a slave? Well, a prisoner is lower than a slave. He's in prison, and he's thrown in there for years. Could God have delivered Joseph from prison? We see that elsewhere in Scripture, God delivering people from prison. Yes, 
Of course, God could have delivered him from prison. But instead, we read in Genesis 39, 21 again, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And again in verse 23, a couple verses later, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It says here that the Lord showed him steadfast love. And that word there, it can be translated as kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And and it's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. It's sometimes translated as goodness, mercy. It's a term used to describe the compassionate, faithful love towards an object that is not deserving of it. This is God's covenant-keeping love. It's, It's his love that he sets on people that is not instigated by that person at all. While the Lord did let Joseph remain in his trial, he never left him in that trial. He was with him, giving him the strength to endure that trial. These are comforting words. Yes, Joseph was in difficult circumstances, and yet he wasn't alone. He wasn't forsaken. The Lord didn't forget him. He was with him. There is no place that we can be a believer, no trial that we can be in where we can be too alone, where we are forgotten by God, where the Lord cannot be with you. And Joseph desired escape from these circumstances. He pleaded with a fellow prisoner about to be released in Genesis 40. He said, remember me. He knew that guy was going to be released and go to Pharaoh. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. But we read in the next verse in Genesis 40, 23, we read, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And then the next verse is my favorite, because in Genesis 41, 1, it says, after two whole years. So not only has Joseph just had this perfect chance to get out of prison, he was forgotten about. Not only was he forgotten about, but now it's been two more years. And still, he is in this trial. God could have given Joseph escape right then. And instead, he gave him the strength to endure. And why? Because again, Joseph was not in difficult circumstances for no reason. God had a purpose to accomplish, and he was using Joseph's affliction to accomplish them. By Joseph being sold into slavery and cast into prison, he was positioned exactly where he needed to be in order to save two nations, Egypt and Israel. God loves to use weak people in weak positions to accomplish his purposes because then, and only then, is it evident that it is God's power at work in them. When you are weak, that is when God looks mighty when you endure. Joseph had no power. He had no wisdom about the future, but God did. And so when Pharaoh needed a dream interpreted of a coming famine, a severe famine, there was Joseph waiting in a prison cell. Despite his weak position, despite having no power at all, he was the only one in the kingdom who could interpret the dream. Did God get glory from that? Joseph told Pharaoh, it's not in me to interpret this dream. God gives the interpretation. Joseph is released from prison. He becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt and saves the nation through his preparations for that famine. Joseph's affliction pointed a watching world to God, to his glory. God uses suffering and affliction to accomplish his plan, his purposes. Do you feel weak here tonight? Are you maybe in a weak position in your life or in your job or in your family, in your friends? God loves to use the weakest among us to display his strength in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty. 1 Corinthians 1.27 tells us that he chooses what is weak to shame the strong so that no one might boast, but that God gets all the glory. 
Joseph eventually says to his brothers, the very ones who had sold him into this misery in the first place, in Genesis 45, he says, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph knew that God was in control of his circumstances, sovereign over them. And in Genesis 50, 20, that familiar verse, he says, As for you, to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph was in incredibly difficult circumstances. You know how long he was in those circumstances? 13 years. It's a long time to not be sure what the Lord was doing. And when did he say that God meant it for good? Was it in the prison? No. It was at the end when he was exalted. Sometimes it takes us time in our trials to see what the Lord is doing, to say God means it for good. But the sooner we get there, the sooner he gets glory, because he does. He always does. God could have granted Joseph escape, but instead he was pleased to give him the strength to endure. And next, let's look at Elijah. Turn with me to 1 Kings 19. Elijah was a prophet sent to the northern kingdom of Israel to call them to repentance from their idolatry. Specifically, he was sent to call uh, the nation of Israel, but specifically King Ahab, to repentance, who was one of the worst northern kings, who was married to an even worse woman, Jezebel. Jezebel had been murdering every prophet of the Lord that she could find, and she has done such a great job of murdering the prophets of the Lord that Elijah is convinced he is the last one left. If you read his life story, he says it over and over again. He says, I, and only I, am left of the prophets of the Lord. Right before 1 Kings 19, the chapter right immediately before, Elijah had just had this amazing showdown with Jezebel's prophets, the prophets of Baal. In front of all Israel, Elijah had set up an altar, and the prophets of Baal had set up their altar, and the idea was whichever God answered by fire, with fire from heaven, that was the true God. So Jezebel's prophets had gone first, they're crying out, they're slashing, trying to get their God to answer, nothing happens. And then Elijah pours water all over his sacrifice, just to make it that much more dramatic and obvious who God is. And then he prayed, and God sent fire from heaven. And not only is his sacrifice burned up, but so so is the wood, the stones, the dust, the water, everything. Elijah's God is the only true God. And this would have been amazing to see. And if that were not enough of a display of divine power, Elijah then calls out to the Lord to end a three-year famine. He prays, and God answers him. He sends rain for the first time in three years. This is a total victory for the Lord, for Elijah. So Elijah has now gotten to see two miraculous answers, personal, personal answers from God in the span of a day, two personal answers. And now you say, so where's the trial? This is a great day for Elijah. But in 1 Kings 19, the very next chapter, things take a turn. Read with me 1 Kings 19, beginning in 1 and 2. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done because... After that sacrifice had been burned up, Elijah had actually slaughtered all of the priests of Baal. So Ahab tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Look, you might think that this death threat wouldn't rattle Elijah very much, right? He had just seen fire fall from heaven. But read with me his response. Verse 3 says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. 
Not much time had passed between Mount Carmel, this display on Mount Carmel, but Elijah hears that Jezebel wants to kill him and he forgets everything. He is terrified. He flees to the wilderness. He feels alone. He's been alone for so long and he's doing a very hard job. Jezebel has killed everybody and Elijah is sure she is going to kill him. And this was a trial. And this encourages me in my life because I feel like I've gotten to see so much of God's faithfulness, so much of God's goodness, and yet I can forget all of it in a second. I can, I can forget all of it without constantly keeping my mind trained there. Is that not the nature of sin? To crowd out our vision so that all that we can see are our circumstances instead of the God in control of those circumstances? Elijah desired escape from his circumstances. Read with me in verses 4 and 5. It says, But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah is so discouraged, he's so afraid, that he has become suicidal. He asks God to take his life. Elijah was in a trial. Now, could the God, who had just dropped fire from heaven and summoned rain from the ends of the earth, have given Elijah escape from his circumstances? Yes, he could have struck Ahab down right then. But he doesn't. Look what he gives him instead. Read with me 1 Kings 19, 5 through 8. It says that Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. In addition to strengthening him physically with food, then God proceeds to actually meet with Elijah. Elijah was in a trial. And rather than escape from that trial, God provided something far more precious for Elijah. He, he gave him the strength to endure. He did that physically, and he did that when he spoke to him a few verses later. And when he speaks to Elijah, he tells him that, first of all, Ahab is not going to be king for very much longer. Then he tells him Elijah is not going to be the only prophet. There's going to be Elisha. And that there are 7,000 others who have not worshipped Baal yet. So suddenly it would seem as though Elijah is very much not alone. Rather than escape from his trial, God provided the strength to endure. Why? Why not just let him escape the trial in the first place? Because this is how God gets glory. Because Elijah was not in difficult circumstances for no reason. God had a purpose to accomplish, and he used Elijah's affliction to accomplish it. This discouraged, lonely prophet had no palace, he had no army, and yet despite his weak position, despite having no power at all, he single-handedly defeated all of the prophets of Baal. God got glory through that. Just before God answers him with fire for his sacrifice, Elijah says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And that's the point, right? The whole purpose of that was to point the entire nation of Israel to lift their eyes to see God for who he is. Only God can interpret dreams like Joseph. Only God can answer with fire from heaven like Elijah. God uses suffering and affliction to accomplish his plan to put his glory on display. And Elijah's perspective was limited, and there's a lesson for us there too. He thought he was the only one left, and God says there are 7,000. Sometimes our perspective is limited like Elijah's. We can only see so much. But his perspective, God's perspective, is the only one that matters. We have to believe 
that what that we have to believe that what God God's perspective is is better than what ours is and trust him and there's a postscript here there's a there's a PS there Elijah was in the wilderness so terrified that Jezebel was gonna kill him and God could have told him right then and there that he was never gonna die Elijah was one of the only people in the Bible to not die, but to be swept up to heaven with chariots of fire. God didn't tell him that. Instead, he gave him strength to endure because God gets glory when we trust him. Not when we know everything, but when we trust him to know everything. That makes him look great. My friends, trials never thwart God's plan. They are the means by which he accomplishes it. Through weak saints, enduring trials, not being moved by them, God puts his glory on display to a world that desperately needs to see it. That's what we see all throughout scripture. We, do, we don't see more often than not God giving his saints escape. Sometimes he does, but more often than not, we see him giving his saints the strength to endure, to be faithful for his glory. Trials will come. So why, why, why must we know that first point? Because... Knowing that trials will come gives us the opportunity now to be prepared for when they do. Because if you're going along in your Christian life expecting a life of ease, and instead you receive trials, you'll be caught off guard. You'll be confused. You'll be crushed. Go back to James chapter 1, to our text. Trials will come, and we have to be prepared. And this brings us to the second truth for tonight, and that is that trials test our foundation. We see this in the crucible here that's happening in this verse. It says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Trials test our foundation. On October 10th, 2018, Hurricane Michael slammed into the Florida panhandle as a Category 5 hurricane. I know we're all fresh from Hurricane Ian, but Hurricane Michael was worse than Hurricane Ian. It was, only, it was one of only four storms on record of that caliber to hit the U.S. mainland. It carried winds of 160 miles an hour, brought with it a 14-foot storm surge. The city of Mexico Beach, Florida, was almost completely destroyed by this storm. More than three-quarters of all homes were completely flattened or swept away. But there's this picture, and I would encourage you to look it up because it's remarkable. There's a picture that emerged after the storm of a house built right on the sand, right on the water. And it's standing in the midst of flattened homes and wreckage, standing, it looks perfect. How did that house survive? That's the question that you ask when you see this picture, when all around it did not. Well, Dr. LeBron Lackey and his uncle, who were the owners, had built that house specifically to survive the big one. Building code in Mexico Beach mandates houses be built to withstand 120 mile per hour winds. They built their house to withstand 240 mile per hour winds, twice as much. Instead of driving their pilings 20 feet down, as building code mandates, they drove their pilings 40 feet down into the sand to anchor their house. And on top of those 40-foot pilings, they poured concrete walls a foot thick all over their house, and they reinforced them with rebar. Not only that, they ran steel cables down up from the ground, up one side, over the roof, and down to the other to keep their roof on in case of strong winds. And they had to make tough decisions. There were sacrifices they had to make. They couldn't have these big picture windows. Those weren't going to be hurricane-proof. They couldn't have a wide-open balcony. Everything in the house's foundation and construction was built to preserve it in a storm. And it worked. 
Hurricane Michael was responsible for 16 fatalities and $25 billion worth of damage. And Dr. Lackey's house lost two windows from one bedroom and one outside stair. Dr. LeBron Lackey and his uncle knew that hurricanes would come. And they were prepared. The strength of that house's foundation was not truly known until after that hurricane hit. Because a storm reveals just how strong a foundation is. And the same is true of our faith. Trials test the foundation of our faith. The word for trial here is parasmus. It means a testing, a probation. It can also be translated as a temptation, as a test. This is a testing for us. This is where we prove whether or not we are actually believers and how we respond to temptations and trials. Something is being tested here, and what's being tested is our faith. In the world of gold, we don't think of crucibles as a bad thing. That's, that's a good thing in the world of gold, because they're designed to melt away impurities and reveal that which is most real and most precious, the pure gold. God has designed trials to be a crucible for our faith, to expose and melt away its impurities, so that what remains after that trial is bound to be real and pure and precious, stronger even. Our faith is tested, but our faith in what? What is the foundation of our faith? On what is it built upon? Our faith is built upon the character and promises of God, specifically as they're revealed in the character of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about this more tomorrow, the character of God, but this is our foundation. This is what never moves. It's what never changes when everything around us does. Malachi 3.16 says, I, the Lord, do not change. God is described over and over and over again in the Psalms as a rock. David says in Psalm 18 too, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. David needed a rock because his circumstances were constantly changing and God never did. The foundation of our faith, it's built on God's holiness. Isaiah 6, 3, Isaiah is before the throne room of God and he sees seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's holiness means that he is completely set apart, totally unstained from any sin. There is not a single part of God's character that has any thought or desire for anything other than absolute purity and righteousness. That thought still blows my mind. And that's why we as sinners can have no communion with God until our sin is eradicated. That's why Hebrews 12:14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The foundation of our faith is built on his sovereignty. Psalm 115.3 is one of my favorite verses. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is in control of every molecule in the universe, every person, every place, every event, every accident, every disease, everything. It's built on God's power. Psalm 62 says that power belongs to God. God is able to accomplish the things he desires. No one, nothing is more powerful than God. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's built on his wisdom. Isaiah 55.8.9, another precious verse to me, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my way, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is infinitely wise. He is able to discern the very best plan of action every single time usually not the one that we would choose, at least not for me. It's built on God's goodness. Psalm 119.68 says you are good and you do good. God is the definition of good. God does not do something because it is good. Something is good because God does it. 
He is the definition of goodness. And nowhere do we see the character of God more clearly on display than in the person of Jesus Christ. We see his holiness every time he was tempted and did not sin. We see his sovereignty, his power over the wind and the waves, and the demons over the power to multiply bread. We see it when he made the sick well, when he caused the dead to rise. We see his wisdom on display in trumping every trick of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We see it in the timing of, of when he came, how he came. We see his goodness, his mercy on the cross. He came, it says in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Listen, before Christ, and this is familiar to many of us, but man, we just need to hear this all the time because this is who we were. The Bible says we were lost. We were in darkness and we loved darkness. John 3.19 says the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Romans 6 tells us we were slaves to our sin. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were actually spiritually dead. My husband uh, was in a men's discipleship class a long time ago now, like 10, 15 years ago. I'm so old, so that number keeps getting bigger and bigger, I think, every time I talk. Um, and the, the topic of that week was evangelism, and they were going to go on a field trip, and so the pastor who was teaching the class didn't tell the guys where they were going. They showed up. They all loaded into a van, and he just drove and drove, and he pulled up to a cemetery. And they all got out, and he gestured at the gravestones, and he said, this is who you're evangelizing when you're preaching the gospel. He didn't actually mean the people in the graves. That would be a different class. Um, <laughs> but what he meant is that people are spiritually dead. We cannot bring the dead to life, but God can. But that is how hopeless our cause was before Christ saved us before he came. And in Ephesians 2, 8, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In the greatest exchange in history, Jesus actually became the sin of everyone who would believe in him on the cross. And he suffered the eternal wrath of his father in their place. He made us alive. And then he gave us his righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's where we see God's character on display on the cross, his goodness, his justice, his mercy. We've been rescued. This is the foundation of our faith. This is the spiritual concrete and rebar and steel cables that anchor it. It is the fact that God is who he says he is, and he does what he promises to do because he's not like us. And that is what's being tested when trials come. Not whether or not God's character will endure, because it always will, but whether or not we actually believe God's character when trials come. Whether or not we're actually trusting it. Look, you can know these things and not trust them at all. You can go to church every Sunday your entire life and not actually ever truly trust the Lord. That's why it's a testing. That's why it's helpful for us. I'm so thankful for trials. I'm so thankful for every trial in my life, especially the small ones. Because if your faith is never tested, how do you know if it's real? You never would. Trials test our foundations. Our foundations singular. They are a crucible through which faith that is real and precious emerges. 1 Peter 1, 6, 7 says the same thing. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials test the foundation of our faith, and that's a gift. Dr. Lackey was prepared for that hurricane. 
because his foundation was strong. He made sure of it. We prepare for life's coming trials now by knowing how strong of a foundation we have. Dr. Lackey knew how deep the pilings of his house went into that sand. We must be so well acquainted with God's character, with his attributes, that when the storms of life come, we know that we don't have anything to fear. Not really. Because we know the one in control of those things. And we know his character, we know that he's good, and we know his purposes in those things. We don't have to fear because we know how strong our foundation is. And we know that we do this, we get acquainted with God's character by reading this book. We have to be reading our Bibles. A pastor of mine used to say, we come to the Word of God to know the God of the Word. This is where we do that. We don't just go out and ponder it ourselves. We can see glimpses of God in creation. That's how he designed it, like Psalm 19 says. But he gave us his Word to tell us specifically who he is. What a kindness. So the first truth is that trials will come. The second is that trials test the foundation of our faith. And thirdly, truth number three, through faith, Trials are transformed. This is the conclusion of, of these things. It says to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This verse says to consider it joy when trials come because you know something. Do you see that? It says for you know. You know something. We never count trials joy because of how they feel. Trials Never feel good. We count trials joy because of something we know from this verse, something we know from God's word. And what is it that we know? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, as the NASB says, or for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials produce something in the life of a believer. They produce endurance. This is a means that God uses to strengthen faith. They are designed by God to be faith-strengthening, endurance-producing tools. The inconveniences, the afflictions, the sufferings, the tragedies of our lives, they are not opposed to God's plan for you, believer. They are a part of it in making you more like Christ. I love uh, the illustration of the Biosphere 2 experiment. Does anyone, has anyone ever heard of the Biosphere 2? I live in Phoenix. Oh, there's one. All right. Biosphere 2 is in Tucson, Arizona, where I was actually born. And in, on September 26, 1991, eight scientists sealed themselves inside of a three-acre structure. It was built to be completely enclosed, an artificial, materially closed ecological system to begin a two-year scientific experiment to see how well they could live just completely off of their own resources in there. And they put all of these different biomes. I've toured it. It's actually cool to go like one time at school, maybe not all the times. I mean, they had 20,000 square feet of rainforest. They had 9,000 square feet of a simulated ocean complete with a coral reef. They had 4,800 square feet of wetlands. There was a savanna grassland. It was a, there was a fog desert. It was, it's cool to tour once. But here's the thing. Something really unusual happened inside of the biosphere, too. Again, it's a completely con contained system. Something weird happened with the trees. They would grow really quickly, uh, and then they would fall over before they were fully grown, because the one variable that the scientists had not taken into account was wind. There was no wind inside that structure. And as it turns out, as a tree is pushed and pulled, and scientists don't completely understand this all the way yet, but as a tree is pushed and pulled by the wind, especially strong wind, a reaction is triggered inside the tree's cells, and it produces pockets of something called stress wood or reaction wood. And that wood forms on the side of the plant that is under the tension. It actually pulls the plant toward the affecting force, and it actually strengthens those weak points in the tree, and that allows the tree to grow. 
it strengthens the weak points as the tree grows. So since the trees in the biosphere too had no wind, they never developed any stress wood so that they would fall over as soon as gravity became too much for that tree's weak spots. And I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this illustration. In the same way that the winds pushing against trees produced that vital stress wood, God sends trials in our lives to produce endurance. Every time a trial comes into your life and you look to the Lord, you see him prove himself faithful. This produces steadfastness because you've seen him be faithful. Your faith gets stronger. You trust him more because you've seen yet one more example of him not leaving you, of your faith being proven real. And note the beginning of this truth. It says, through faith. We cannot just know these things, like I said. We have to actually believe them. You have to actually entrust yourself to these things. We have to throw all that we know of ourselves on all that we know of God and trust him to be who he says he is. We don't have to be anxious or fearful about trials coming into our lives because God has told us his purpose for trials. He's told us that trials will come and that they serve a good purpose. I got an opportunity really recently to rehearse these truths all over again to myself in just the last 24 hours because in my flight uh, yesterday that I was supposed to get on, I missed it. I got a flat tire on the way to get my kids, lost the margin there, and then, and this is the funny part. It's not, it's not actually funny yet. I'm sure it will be one day, but that day is not today. Um, we missed our flight. We, we totally missed our flight. And I don't know if you know how far away Phoenix is from Virginia, but it's, it takes a minute to get there. And so here it is. It's, here we are. It's 5 p.m. Thursday. I'm supposed to speak <laughs> tonight. And I have to get, and, and, it, and it's last-minute flights. So I, I wasn't actually sure I was going to be here. And I'm watching the plane because I can see the plane. And I'm, I'm watching it go, you know. And I'm just like, this is the Lord's will, Cameron. This is the count of joy. Count this moment joy. The joy did not come right away. But it did come eventually because I do trust that that was the best plan. I don't know why. I don't need to know why. Things actually kept getting worse. Things are still a little bit rocky, but it's fine. <laughs> God has a good purpose in it. Look, it was an opportunity. I've had many opportunities in the last 24 hours to be weak, you know, to, to be dependent on the Lord. I can't do these things. I can't get a flight for myself because they're all booked. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. But man, with him, I can do all things. If he wants to get me there, he can. His power is not limited by any of those things. We don't, we don't uh, look, need to look for escape from trials, ladies. We need to look for endurance as a result of it. He's doing something in those trials. When the foundation of our faith is tested and it emerges intact, perseverance is the result. Our faith is strengthened. So for the believer, trials are transformed from heart-crushing calamities into faith-strengthening opportunities. And knowing that this is what God does through trials allows us to see a trial come into our life and count it joy. And that's our final point. Truth number four is we consider trials joy. This is the command. Make no mistake. This is an imperative here. And this word here, count, it's translated count in the ESV, consider in the NASB. It's such an interesting word because the word is hegeemai. The root of it is actually ago, which is to lead. This word, this exact word for consider or count, is translated in other places as leader, governor, like as a person. Leader, governor, chief speaker. The idea here is what goes, when, it, when it's used with our thoughts, 
It is, it is what goes before, what leads, what goes, in, what goes in front of our thoughts. It's about priority, the leading thought in our mind. In a trial, we have lots of thoughts. Yesterday, I had lots of thoughts. And years ago, when I went through a bigger trial, I often said at that time, my thoughts are like wild horses, just threatening to drag me off into every worst case scenario possible. And I just had to rein them in all the time. Our thoughts can go everywhere, but what James 1-2 is commanding here is that the leading thought in our minds about our trial is joy. It has to be joy. We have to consider it joy, not because of how it feels, but because of what we know God is doing through the trial and because we trust him more. We trust him more than what we can see in that trial. It doesn't even say to count it joy. It actually says to count it all joy. All joy. This is not how the world thinks. We let this thought rule over all of our other thoughts. The idea here is you lift your eyes from the immediate circumstances of your trial and you fix them on the one who's in control of it. You trust him. You know he's working it for good and you count that joy because you, because you trust him. We, we need to have hearts that say, God, whatever it is you are trying to accomplish in this painful or difficult thing in my life, my family, my child, my marriage, my job, my school, this relationship, my health, whether it lasts forever or just for a day, I will do this as long as it is producing something in me. I will consider it joy. Romans 5.3 says, not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, which we just read, it says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. We are promised trials, and that could be a frightening thought. <sighs> Man, but we can trust that when they do come, God will not leave us in them alone any more than he did with Joseph or Elijah. And remember, believer, God did not make a plan where suffering did not come first and most to himself. God's plan to rescue sinners included trials included suffering and affliction. Jesus went through the greatest testing, the greatest temptations, the greatest trial in the history of mankind. Trials did not thwart God's plan and salvation. That was the means by which he accomplished it. Trials will come. We're not called to look first and most for escape from them in case the name of the conference didn't give it away already. We're called to endure, not just endure, but to endure and endure with joy to look to, to God for strength. And you know, it's not wrong to plead with God for relief in your trial, right? That's not wrong. But if his answer is no, if his answer is wait, then you look to Jesus and you continue entrusting yourselves to that one who knows more than you do. God uses suffering and affliction to accomplish his plan. And I just want to give you one um, personal example in closing tonight of how, uh, of how these truths, knowing these truths, transform trials in a, in a personal example in my life. Um, so I, I mentioned that my, my husband and I, with our four kids, were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. We had a 10-year plan over there. But two years into that 10-year plan, God redirected our steps. Started out with a really bad case of strep throat. My oldest daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, we're in this helicopter access-only village. She begins to get strep throat over and over and over again. No big deal at first. We have amoxicillin but it keeps coming back. It's just so deep in her tonsils that um, we can't get rid of it. Every time it comes back, her fever gets higher. 
Um, I can't bring it down anymore. Her tonsils get so swollen that she can't swallow water. And uh, it got scary. So we came home to uh, get her a tonsillectomy. And while we were home, God is so kind, while we were home, my husband, Matt, began uh, having some weird symptoms. His left hand would go numb, and then the feeling would return a few minutes later. Left side of his face would go numb, and then the feeling would return a bit later. So we scheduled an MRI, but the neurologist was really not concerned. Really, he was super not concerned. So I was at a play date with a friend across town when my husband called me from his MRI, and he said, it's bad news. The MRI had revealed over a dozen tumors in his brain metastasized cancer from somewhere else in his body. And he was being sent to the emergency room because one of them had, had already bled, started to bleed once. Could I meet him at the emergency room? So this was that phone call for me. As I drove to meet him, I will tell you what uh, calling these truths to mind looked like for me. I, it looked like God in his kindness calling to mind verse after verse of what my foundation was made up of. It was made up of God's sovereignty, God was in control of what was happening in my husband's body. It was made up of um, his goodness. I knew that uh, God, when God does something, it's good. He never makes mistakes. And I knew that he loved my husband and me, that he didn't even spare his own son to rescue us. How will he not also with, uh, with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. I knew that if there was something better for us, if there was something better for our kids, who were smaller than, than these circumstances that God would give that to us instead. I knew what James 1-2 said, that God uses trials as a tool to strengthen our faith and to prove it, to bring endurance to it. And when I arrived at the hospital, there was my husband smiling, saying the exact same thing. In fact, after the biopsy that confirmed that it was cancer, my husband was like really hoping it was some weird Papua New Guinean parasite that just looked like cancer. But it wasn't, and I was the one who told him when he woke up from his biopsy. So, you know, he's waking up from the anesthesia, and I say, and he goes, what is it? What did the doctor say? And, and I said, yeah, and I said, it's cancer. And he said, bummer. <laughs> and then he said, well, I guess it's kind of an honor, because not every Christian gets to get cancer. Because Matt had always, from as long as I had known him, he'd always wanted to die as like a martyr someday. Like he would say, hey, Cameron, when we get really old, when we're like 90-something, and it looks like it's the end, can we just go to Pakistan and preach the gospel and just let him stone us? And I'd be like, maybe just ask me later. Maybe ask me then. Um, the point is, is that he always wanted his, his life to count for Christ. He also wanted his death to count for Christ. And so he saw this as an opportunity to... Um, to show honor to, to, to God, because it turned out to be a terminal illness, stage four lung cancer. And as he was waking up from that anesthesia, he actually kept forgetting, you know, <laughs> what he said. So I had to tell him he was dying like 10 times. Not the most pleasant experience, but do you know what? He responded the same way every single time. That was so sweet for me to see. Once Matt realized that it was a terminal diagnosis, this is what he wrote in his journal a few days after that. He said, God, it was a little bit hard for me yesterday to realize that I might not make it through this. Yet, I don't actually think this changes anything. Even if we do find out this is the worst kind of lung cancer there is, it doesn't change your goodness. Though I may want to fight and continue in ministry with my family and the world, that may not be your plan. And oh, it would be nice to come home, but oh, so sad for all my family and friends. So I suppose the question is in light of this, what should I do today? How ought I live today? The same I'll live in heaven, the same I'd live without cancer.
praising you, worshiping you, knowing you more, fighting my sin, and being oh so bold with the gospel. A Category 5 hurricane beat on my husband's house, and it didn't fall because it had been founded on a rock that doesn't move. And I got to see that. My kids got to see that. His, the entirety of his illness was marked with joy, just joy. And our circumstances, like Job's, not Job's, well, not like Job's, <laughs> but our circumstances actually got worse. Three weeks after the diagnosis, Matt had a stroke, which left him completely paralyzed on the left side for a time. He had to learn how to walk again, eat again, and all of that. But man, even in that, do you see God's goodness? Because you know where Matt should have been that day that he had a stroke? He should have been in a village in Papua New Guinea. We should have had no idea he had cancer, and he would have just dropped dead that day. But instead, the Lord was kind to afflict my daughter with strep throat again and again and again and afflict me, all anxious in the tribe, to watch my daughter be so sick. And he made it so bad and it got so bad that he brought us home. Because we never, the symptoms were so vague, we never would have come home for that. It's very expensive to come home from Papua New Guinea. He brought us home so that we could know. And Matt's life was spared that day from that stroke. He recovered. He preached a sermon at our church, which you're welcome to go online and see. And it's called Four Truths to Sustain a Dying Man. Those four truths being, we have a hope in heaven. I will never suffer in this life as much as my Savior suffered for me. Christians love one another, and God loves us. Uh, on July 18th, 2017, uh, he passed away. And there was a moment right after he passed away, I was with him when he passed away, and there was a moment where I was just absolutely terrified. It was, I think it was the only time, that, that entire time, that I was um, just genuinely terrified because I, I hadn't been a Christian without my husband. I, I got saved after him, or I got saved after I met him. And for a second, I just thought I was going to lose everything. I, don't, I didn't know how I was going to tell my kids who were playing Legos in the next room. I didn't, I didn't know. And I really thought for a second I was just going to lose my faith. I was going to lose everything. And all I did, and there's nothing magical or mystical about this, I just grabbed my Bible. I had been reading um, to my husband, Psalm 46, a few minutes before. God is my refuge and my strength. And I realized that my husband no longer needed to hear those words because he was already with him. But I still needed to hear those words. And God hadn't changed. My foundation hadn't moved. God was still my refuge. He was still my strength, even in that moment. And it's like the Lord just sort of closed this abyss that had opened up before me. He was so kind. I will tell you that it was an absolute privilege to go through what I went through. Because I have gotten to see God be who he says he is and do what he promises to do in a way I never would have gotten to see apart from that. He has done us no wrong. He's done my kids no wrong. He has only done us good and continued to do us good. He has not left us or forsaken us. Not for a moment. And knowing these truths about trials prepared us for that storm. So grateful for that. My friends, the winds will blow and beat on our houses. But if God is your foundation, you cannot be moved. And I would plead with you here tonight that if God is not your foundation, if your foundation is on anything less than this rock, it will, your house will fall. You will be swept away when trials come. But if you come to God, if you come to Christ, if you place your faith in him and his work on the cross, and you make God your foundation, your immovable rock, your house will stand. That is because he does what he promises to do. He upholds our faith. Are there circumstances from which you desire escape? Have you considered that God might be more glorified by you enduring through your hard circumstances in his strength 
making much of him and your weakness, pointing to him like Joseph. He's the only one that can interpret dreams. Or Elijah, he's the only one that can send fire. Have you considered that he might be more glorified by you enduring in his strength than by just escaping from it? Oh, that we might have hearts, that when trials come, we look to our foundation in God, not look for escape from our trials, but look for the endurance that comes about as a result of them so that God gets the glory and so that our faith is made more steadfast. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm just so grateful, Lord, that we get that you hear our prayers. We are in this room, you know, every heart in this room. Um, you know, every lady in this room, you have brought her into this room to hear your word. God, I just pray that where there is conviction of sin, Lord, that um, that, that would not be ignored. Um, that where there is weakness, Lord, that, that, um, that, that they would look to you for strength. Because, oh God, you are strong and you don't move. Your character is sure. Nothing else in this world is. Everything else will perish and fade away, God, but you never will. We thank you for the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Our biggest problem ultimately will never be cancer. It will never be the trials in this life. Our biggest problem will always be our sin against you. And oh, that problem was solved by Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross. Thank you for that hope. And thank you for being a rock which never moves. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.